Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's never been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. So, the holiday well and truly over, it seems, uh, for us... And for the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, of course, his first task is the small matter of the crisis in the Middle East. We've been talking about it uh, all morning. Uh, The funeral, obviously, of uh, the uh, Iraqi military leader takes place tomorrow. Europe scrabbling to to figure out what their position on this is. Yeah, you've got E3, the so-called E3, the UK, Germany and France, trying to position themselves intelligently here, I suppose. So they've got this missive out calling for all sides to work towards de-escalation. That is the crux of it. Donald Trump, though, pretty bellicose. He says there are 52 targets lined up if Tehran retaliates over Qasem Soleimani's death. Uh, We heard from the former Defence Minister Tobias Elwood, who says that Europe can put pressure on Trump. This is an opportunity for us to reassess, and I do hope that we can be that calming influence on a, a president that's never been tested in this way before. So that was uh, the MP Tobias Elwood. That said, Mr Johnson has been accused of, quote, sunning himself drinking vodka martinis in the Caribbean instead of dealing with the Iran crisis in what was a really withering Labour attack. The Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury uh, pointed to how Cabinet Secretary Mark Sedwell had been left to chair three emergency COBRA meetings about the assassination in the absence of Prime Minister Johnson. So getting some heat from the opposition, let's chew this over with Edward Evans, our Brexit editor, who joins us as always to get into the heart of this. I thought the mail, uh, Edward, really struck this pretty starkly. PM walks tightrope over Iran, because the issue here, of course, is that before we know it, there's going to be negotiations around a free trade deal with the US. So how does he take it from here in order to keep everybody happy? It's very, very difficult for him to, to balance this, as you say. Uh, he, you know, the trade deal may not happen this year, of course, because we're going to US election year. That may put it off till next year if it happens. So he may get a little bit of breathing room there. The question is, you know, how long is Europe going to remain united on this? Historically, Europe, the EU has been very weak on foreign policy. It's one of the areas where the member states have far more control than the rest of Europe. Now, can France, can the UK, can Germany, can they maintain a united front on this? Or if Donald Trump cranks up the pressure, does that break apart? And does the UK UK cleave towards Trump 
uh, leaving France and Germany towards Europe. We just don't know. But for Downing Street at the moment, it's a very this couldn't have come at a more more difficult time in a way. No, absolutely. And I mean, there's a there's a very um, sort of pointed little cartoon that I saw in the Guardian this morning uh, with uh, Mr. Johnson sort of chasing after President Trump on an escalator, whizzing off towards what looked like an absolute firestorm. Sort of uh, Mr. Johnson trying to kind of chase after him. Look. Um, Boris Johnson has had a lot of criticism, obviously, for remaining on holiday. Um, we talked about that withering attack from Labour. But does he suffer from this? I mean, you know, President Trump tweets in, in a second and Europe spends days trying to figure out what to what to say in response. Well, that's a reflection of who decides foreign policy in Europe. In the US, it's one down to one, yeah. the whims of one man. In Europe, it's split among very many people. And, you know, Johnson is only one of several leaders um, who, who, who decide all this. The question is, if Johnson had tweeted, what would he have said? What would he have done? What would he have done? So do, do you mean then that this potentially doesn't really hurt uh, Mr. Johnson, the kind of criticism of the opposition Labour Party? I'm not going to make a judgment on that. It's obviously, you know, they want to make a point about Johnson. It's what happens with every leader if they're on holiday and something blows up in the world. You know, come back to what crisis, what crisis um, and the rest of it. But, you know, the question, follow up question is surely, okay, if Johnson was back in London, what would he have done? What would he have done differently? Isn't it an issue of symbolism, though? You had uh, Theresa May going to Wales, David Cameron going to Cornwall. They're always close by. Mystique's a very, very long way away. Mustique is a very long and very glamorous, uh, unusually <laughs> glamorous holiday destination uh, for a British prime minister. I mean, the optics are are bad. There's no there's no issue with that. Um, question is now from here, what can what can Johnson do? Okay, let's uh, talk about um, other matters then in terms of the realms of politics. So, uh, the Labour Party were expecting to hear uh, from the NEC, the committee today, about exactly what shape the contest for the leadership to replace Jeremy Corbyn is going to look like eerie silence from Rebecca Long-Bailey. We've got five contestants. And as you say, we still don't know what one of the great hopes of the, the Corbynite wing of the party is going to do. If you're, ser- if you're serious about going for it, why, why haven't you come out at this point? It's a question that many people are asking. And the NEC, as we know, heavily stacked in With. the Corbynist favour. There's been a lot of speculation about what they could do to try and push their preferred candidate. We're talking about potentially shortening the contest, making it more expensive for supporters to join up. Those £3 supporters from before could become £25 supporters and also shortening the sign-up window for them. Like all good political fights, this is about who decides the rules and mm. h- how are the rules framed to the advantage of one of the candidates. Now, of course, if you want to have, if you want to, put, if the Corbynistas want to put in a, a, a Corbynista, they'll want to shorten the time. They'll want to limit the number of um, people who can um, join the party. Don't forget the, 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 the allegations of entryism in the party when Corbyn was mm. made leader. People signed, paid three pounds to join up. Lots of people did and voted for Corbyn to help him. They obviously they don't want that to happen in reverse uh, for another candidate. But equally, there's a question: if they don't have a candidate to to unite around, is it Long Bailey or not? Do they then try and prolong the contest and set it out so that they can let their other option, other candidates from that wing, potentially in Lavery, come through? And but they all need time to to bed in and, and appear. So. It's very interesting to see how it, what the what their goals are. Are they united in that or not? 
It's okay. not clear at this point. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Keir Starmer, obviously just the latest, the Labour uh, Brexit spokesman uh, throwing his hat in the ring over the weekend. Well, listen, uh, whilst, I, whilst I get Ed to switch off his telephone, um, I'm going to play you a little bit of sound. The former Deputy Labour leader, Tom Watson, says that those who are in the leadership battle uh, must make sure, that, or it must be clear, that the leadership battle for the Labour Party is going to be transparent. Have a listen. They've got to explain why Labour loses elections and what we've got to do to win. The bigger task is for our members to decide whether they want an electorally successful party or whether they want us to be pure in that classic ideological sense. And the other side from the the Corbyn supporters of that debate that Tom Watson was laying out, I suppose, is Jess Phillips, who's very much talking about winning elections. Um, But it's been a bit of a rough start for her. She came out with what sounded like potentially a a slip of the tongue on on Ma and posed herself as an arch remainer. Do you think that's really going to affect her? Well, more than that, it wasn't just about remaining. It was about rejoining Rejoining, after after the event. Now, this may have been something that was said, you know, she's she's a very outspoken politician. This may have been something she said in the heat of the moment. I think subsequent to that interview with the BBC, she's rowed back very carefully. Mm. We haven't even left yet. So let's not get over it. Yes, it does create a problem because, of course, with the withdrawal agreement bill going through parliament you know we change the, the whole brexit debate changes the moment it goes through from about leave and remain into remain to, to rejoin essentially or stay out and that changes that changes that's a fundamentally different argument to the one we we've, we've been having throughout uh, so, hang on just a second yeah. is that debate really going to happen are we really going to have the rejoin debate it's going to be it, it. It's going to be difficult for the re, the rejoiners. I think you know, the, the debate has moved on. If you see a lot of the commentary over Chris, the the, the Christmas break will remain as saying you know, they've lost, they've accepted that it's time to move on. Yes, so th- there will be many on that side who say, well, look, the people have decided. There's been a referendum. There's been an ele- two elections over this. It's time to move on. But there will be some within that movement who will want to go on and for whom this will be a cause that will go on long after Brexit and long after it goes through. They may well be in a very small minority, but it's not going to be a debate that goes away. And I suppose taking it back to Jess Phillips, her pitch really is, I'm the honest one, I say what I think. We've already seen an incident of that backfiring. Is that going to tar her? It's too early in the competition to see how what effect it will have. I think what it will underline in a way will be people you know many people's concerns that she is very outspoken as you say it's not she shoots absolutely straight from the hip it's not clear though if that's a considered position remember of course she sits for a seat that voted to leave the eu you know it still goes back to this question okay where does labor actually stand on brexit what does it want what does it want to do and i think you know starmer over the weekend was saying very clearly they, they didn't have a clear policy on this and this hurt them uh, Ed, you're our Brexit editor, so perhaps uh, this is, uh, we should also ask you, just in terms of the withdrawal bill, Parliament coming back uh, tomorrow, just uh, run us through, top of your mind, the start of 2020, what are you thinking about in terms of the Brexit debate and the, the trade uh, negotiations that are going to start up between the UK and the EU, albeit overshadowed by Iran? Yeah, and the, the basic point is the debate has now moved from Parliament to Westminster. The withdrawal agreement bill will go through the Commons this week uh, between two Tuesday and Thursday. Johnson now has a majority. So all those efforts to amend the bill that caused so much drama before the election 
it's really hard to see how those get through with an 80 seat majority. So I don't I think that will be that will go through within weeks and we're on course to leave on the 31st. The big point here is this it changes now from a debate about leaving to a debate about the future relationship about trade and that's where Ursula von der Leyen's visit is so important this week on Wednesday because we don't know from either side what their positions are in this trade negotiation, what their red lines are. And we're going to see a, a dance now over the next few months as we try to get to that point where at the end of the transition period, the end of December, of agreeing a trade deal. And that is going to be difficult. And we've seen people, uh, Phil Hogan and others on the European side over Christmas saying, look, the timetable is difficult, impossible. Downing Street seem to be of the view that it is possible. But of course, the more that Johnson wants to diverge from the EU, the harder it is going to be to agree that trade deal. That's going to be the big argument, the big tension that we'll see play out in data, in fish, uh, in financial services, in all sorts of areas over the next uh, 12 months. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. I've got this story in the Evening Standard. Uh, this is the husband of the jailed mother, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who's asking Boris Johnson to meet him and other families with relatives detained in Iran. Richard Ratcliffe saying that his wife's mood was desperate amid escalating tensions, and he begged all sides to calm down. He says, we're looking to the Prime Minister to make really clear that the protection of citizens like Nazanin and the others who are held is top priority for him. Of course, there's history there between Boris Johnson and the Ratcliffes. There absolutely is, of course, Boris Johnson, uh, when he was Foreign Secretary. Yeah, so uh, this you know, goes to the, the tensions between the US uh, and Iran, between Washington and Tehran, and now what Europe and specifically the UK uh, you know, can do about it. Uh, so, yeah, I think that is a very interesting story. But then also um, this on post-Brexit trade deals. Uh, so writing in the House magazine, David Lawrence, who is this senior political advisor at the Trade Justice Movement. So it's basically a network of civil society organisations looking at trade rules and what they mean uh, for people, for the planet and so on. I, I, I like this article. He's talking about post-Brexit trade deals with the EU and the US are going to define our futures MPs could be left without a say. So he's a kind of champion for parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, he's supporting an amendment by Caroline Lucas to try to have more scrutiny over the withdrawal bill. Although we were speaking to our own Brexit editor, Ed Evans, saying, look, it's going to happen. It's, you know, it's, it's just going to get through with an 80 seat majority. It's done and dusted. Um, but actually, he makes some good points, David Lawrence, about how, we, you know, even with that, it's perhaps more important than ever to actually keep hold of power for MPs to actually scrutinise the legislation mm. and the trade deal that the UK does with the EU and possibly the US down the line, I guess. Yeah, I think Labour's bringing a similar amendment as well. And it's all going to be about really the tone of the debate now that, as you say, these knife edge votes, they're gone. This yep, is all gone. going to fly right through. But I suppose as, as the opposition, as the official opposition, you've got to make some sort of stand. And then we've got this story here around HS2, the only major paper that's not splashing 
on uh, US-Iran tensions is the iron. They're looking at HS2, quoting the director of the Northern Powerhouse, who says the high-speed rail project has to go ahead, despite claims that Parliament has been misled over costs. This follows uh, comments from Lord uh, Barclay, who's the deputy chair of the HS2 review panel, who says there's overwhelming evidence that the finances are out of control and the benefits were overstated. Remember, we don't have this review yet, but this is uh, a member of the panel speaking out. He says it's likely to cost over £108 billion. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is obviously something that the current uh, government has now inherited. Uh, £108 quid. It's a huge bill. I mean, one suspects perhaps that this, um, that the review is actually going to be in favour of HS2 because obviously Mm. the the, the deputy has come out against. So perhaps he's trying to get his tuppence worth out in the newspapers before. And so the leaks suggest in the press. Yeah. Uh, So let's talk a little bit more about this uh, with our guest. Joining us today is Tony Travers, who is visiting professor at the LSE's Department of Government uh, and actually also somebody who is on the advisory panel for the HS2 review. Very good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, What do you think then about these various leaks that have emerged and also the report that is due? What can we expect? Well, uh, it's true. I was on the panel, though the uh, panel is really one that worked with the chair of this of the panel, uh, Doug Okerby, whose report it will be. Uh, I understand that the final report or a draft final report is with the government. It will be up to them to uh, when they uh, publish it. Um, but I have to stress it's the chair, Doug Okerby's report, not the panel report. And it does appear that Lord Barclay, who was the deputy or vice chair of this panel, uh, has published his own report with his own views, which you admirably sum, uh, summarised. I think, um, you know, looking at the experience of being on the panel, what's most striking to me, mm-hmm. and I don't want to kind of break uh, the embargo of uh, it finally being published, but what I can say perfectly openly is that the amount of uh, information and often contradictory you know, forecasts that a panel like this has to look at are quite uh, remarkable, given, remember, this project at best wouldn't be completed till 2040. So you're looking at predictions of growth of passengers up to that point. You're looking at economic growth projections to that point and also at the issue of how a big project like this is managed over 25 years or so. So it's very you're trying to make precise calculations over such a long period is extremely but difficult. Then, and okay, that, so yeah, no, just to finish, leads me to believe that in the end, it's hard to get away from the fact that the decision will be primarily, if not exclusively, a political one on the basis of such evidence as you've got, which will be a lot of it and often contradictory. So basically, is this project simply too big to stop? Too much money has gone into it? I mean, that's, of course, why Lord Barclay, I suspect, has published his um, dissenting report, uh, because I think he believes uh, clearly in something something else should be done. Can't speak for him. I mean, I don't think anything's too big to stop, and that's why there's still a debate going on. However, it is worth saying that seven or eight thousand million pounds has already been spent on this project. And to stop it would cost somewhat more. And, of course, from the northern authorities' point of view, they see if they don't get this question, what would they get? 
Well, do you think this is the best thing to give them? I know a lot of money's been spent, but you say the decision is political. And of course, a lot of the votes that put Boris Johnson where he is have come from the North. Well, I mean, all, all public spending decisions are to some degree political because they are made by the government of the day. And you get different patterns of public spending from one government than from another. So I wouldn't want to say that just because more people in the North uh, than in the past voted for, in the Midlands, voted for a Conservative government that would have been true in the past, therefore they're going to get rewarded in some way. But we can put it slightly more objectively. I think that the question of how to improve connectivity within the Midlands and the North, East, West and North, South, and within big cities outside London, is a freestanding political issue that needs to be um, considered and actually something done about it. Now, then the question is, would high speed to be the best way of doing that? And, uh, you know, as I say, it's a political decision from the government, not only about high speed two, but all the other railway and road investments and transport investments that are needed, not only in the Midlands and the North, but across the UK. And what do you think? Because Lord Barclay was saying that it would be better to focus on improving rail services in the North rather than that connecting to London. And he says it could probably be done for half the price. Well, uh, that's his judgment on the basis of, of evidence he's put forward. Um, I think for myself that these issues are, because they're so big, I said this a moment ago, it's very hard to use analysis of forecasts and passenger numbers and so on out into the future and indeed quality of management of projects to make these decisions. So like decision about how much we spend on the National Health Service or how much we spend on, I don't know, aircraft carriers, these are things that politicians just have to decide and then be held to account for making the decision. Um, do you think how, in terms of your reading, then, what about sort of vested interests? Is the government, uh, do you think, of the day able to deal with private business better than perhaps in the days of the public-private partnerships that we had? Uh, are you more or less confident that that a massive project like this can be handled by government now? Well, this is a rich theme of discussion for many years. The, <laughs> the question of how good government is not only at railway, I mean, this is a very big railway, but I've already mentioned indirectly defence procurement, which, you know, is the subject of many National Audit Office reports over many years because of cost overruns mm. and delays. And it's not unique to these two public services either. So the public-private partnership, private finance initiative approach, which has now been dropped, was originally seen by both governments of both parties as a way of trying to improve the delivery and the cost control of such projects. But governments have now decided, oppositions as well, that this isn't the right way to do it. So we're back to, in effect, a version of direct government procurement, always begging the question of whether with big projects and over a long time scale, the public public sector can manage these projects. And I think there are a whole range of issues that tumble out of any but, discussion. But just broadly, because I'd like to get a sort of slightly more definitive answer. Yeah. Broadly, are we getting better or worse at it, I guess? Well, I think I think public sector procurement has improved. I and mean, a lot of efforts been made at the top of government to bring in experts from the private sector who have a better grip on it. And that's probably okay for small to medium-sized projects. What I'm saying is, with a long-term project, something that takes 10 or 20 years to deliver, it's very hard 
in any circumstances to guarantee control over costs over that period. It always will be, and not only about railways, but about defence procurement, any other, anything else the government's buying. We heard a lot recently about Dominic Cummings and what he wants to do to the civil service and government more widely. Do you think this is an area that he could be touching? Well, I read from the media, uh, I'm sure you have, that he is interested in defence procurement mm. and clearly the question of what the military buy and from whom they buy it uh, has long been a subject of interest in this regard. So uh, I can't speak for him, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if a radical uh, look at the way government procures things. And by the way, the relationship between all the interests that are on one side of bigging, increasing public spending mm. on investment and government is itself an interesting one. Nothing to do, again, with high speed to a defence alone, but an interesting subject to look at. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.